You're listening to Lane Powell Live, www.lanepowell.com. It wouldn't be a legal presentation if we didn't include a disclaimer. We want to note that the information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. All information, content, and materials available today are for general informational purposes only. Legislation and regulations are always subject to change, so we recommend that you always check with your legal counsel to ensure that any advice you receive is current. You'll find our full disclaimer at our website, lanepowell.com. Thank you for joining us today. alerted you that there was a situation on board the aircraft? This event occurred in the middle of the morning. We didn't leave till basically midnight. So the routine was that the first thing we do is we'd get something to eat. So the flight attendants would bring us up the, uh, the donuts, believe it or not. <laughs> and then following that, we'd have our meal. So we had um, finished the pastries, and uh, we had just gotten our meal. As we were eating, I, I saw something, a flicker of a light in, to my left, and I looked, and I didn't see anything, and didn't think anything about it, so I went back to the conversation, and uh, I saw it again. And I asked my, my Chris, did, did you guys see any lights flickering? And they go, no, we didn't see anything. So, okay, so we go on for a little bit more, and. Um, then it flickered again, and the engineer told me, he says, I saw a light flicker on my panel. And he just caught it out of the corner of his eye. So that's how the whole thing started. We, we didn't know what was going on, but we had flickering lights, and usually that's an electrical problem of some kind. So that kind of raised our level of awareness. And you saw the flickering light, but you weren't sure which, what it was. Correct. What procedures did you follow to try to ascertain whether the problem was significant or? First was identifying what it was and um, following the, the story up until that point. Now the light came on, stayed on. We had two master caution lights on the glare shield in front of the pilots and there was a master caution on the engineer panel. Uh, in addition to that, a cargo firelight illuminated. Now we knew what we had. The pressure now is building. The airlines have fabulous training. It's really, really good. And they try to train for as many eventualities as they possibly can. So you're, you're fairly well prepared. You have books and manuals that um, are very detailed. They're choreographed basically, um, so that when you're faced with a, with a situation, you identify, you find it in the book, you accomplish a procedure. So we were pretty rote in doing all those things. You go into the rote mode of accomplishing this. And then during that period of time, there isn't much evaluation going on other than looking at the procedure, looking at the situation, 
following a decision tree down to the completion of the procedure, uh, which we did, and uh, that resulted in us um, activating uh, the cargo fire extinguisher system into the cargo compartment. Now we have, that airplane had um, the capability of, of um, expending three canisters in the cargo hold. And this was our first one. From the cockpit, we could only activate two. There was a third, but the third would happen automatically based on one of two conditions. Number one, if it had been an hour and a half, hour and 30 minutes from the, the activation of the second bottle, it would automatically go off. Or if you touch down before the end of an hour and 30 minutes, it would go off. The idea right. is just to ensure the fire is out kind of thing before right. anybody opens a cargo door exactly. and introduces oxygen and that sort of thing. So we had, we had activated the first bottle. We accomplished the uh, procedure. And uh, at that point, now the food goes away, right? <laughs> we don't need the food. No more donuts. No more donuts. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, um, we started looking at potential diversion points. Where were you in the air about this time? Uh, we were probably, I would guess, it's been a long time, but I, I think we're about 100 and probably 50 miles from Tehran. We started discussing where we were going to go. <clears throat> the first thing is, is you gotta communicate that we have an issue. And we use HF, HF, is high frequency radio communications. And basically the um, radio waves bounce off the ionosphere back down to earth, eventually to the receptor. If there's problems with the ionosphere, which is constantly moving, it can interrupt communications. Tons of static on HF. So you, you can hear words, but you have to listen very, very carefully. And that particular night, um, all we heard was static. So we, we would transmit that we have a uh, uh, relay, please. We have a uh, situation aircraft, cargo fire warning, planning a divert, please advise. Because you, you want your dispatch system to be part of the solution, right? Because they're in the ground under low stress situations and they can look at things practically. As you start to build more and more stress, then you know, it, it starts to narrow your focus. It's almost as though you go into a survival mode. Okay, now, I can tell you that during that initial experience, I do remember to this day thinking about other accidents that had recently occurred with cargo fires. You have to assess the threat, you assess the time frame that you have, Fear comes into it because you don't know what's happening. I do remember thinking about particularly those two uh, crashes that occurred because they delayed in getting the airplane on the ground. That went through my mind. And for folks that don't understand, that system and where this where where this fire indication, in the cargo hold, you have no way to physically check that. All you have is your the, your warning system Indicator. and your indicators. There's right. no way to like go and look and see if, hey, can somebody see a fire going on in there? Right. So it, it got more interesting. Um, we had fired the first bottle. 
we were looking at the charts, trying to figure out where we're going to go. We're trying to communicate with the company to get some input as to what you know, they might suggest we could do. But in the meantime, we knew there was a sense of urgency. So just as we're discussing this, the fire warning comes on again. And I can remember, we all three looked at each other. It, it's almost like this can't be happening. What does that really mean? Well, it means that obviously the first bottle, according to what we've been trained, was not adequate. And the fire, if it is there, is not out. At the same time, because of the way the fire warning presented itself, in other words, the flickering lights not coming on completely, the question is going through your mind, is that because it was heating up and wasn't making however it makes contacts? Or is that some kind of an anomaly? That goes back to what you said earlier. Is this a fire or is this an electrical? Maybe this is an electrical exactly. issue. Exactly. We didn't know. And you don't know. How many people do you have on board? We had uh, 241 people and seven crew members. So that's weighing on you at the same time that you've got almost 250 souls that you're responsible for. Well, you would think for. so, but honestly, everyone would like to think that, but I didn't think about that at all at that point. I'm thinking about survival. If this crew gets the airplane to ground, they'll be fine. If we don't get it in the ground, everybody's going to go. So we were pretty much getting into a survival instinct at that point. I um, think that goes to some of our training that has evolved certainly over time, but now when we talk more about the ability to be able to compartmentalize and focus on the task at hand, not get distracted by those sorts of things that may um, bias your decision-making, contribute to not taking care of the real problem at hand and uh, maybe uh, have you making uh, emotional decisions uh, rather than um, more rational uh, decisions based on whatever the problem is that you're pursuing? Yeah, you know, that's with. a really yeah. good point. I think that when you're in that situation, information is bombarding you. And it's a matter of filtering out the information that's not important, somehow organizing that information in some sort of priority, and then picking off the things that have the most uh, opportunity to kill you. Get rid of those first, right? So which right now is get rid of the fire. Right. So we fire the second bottle. Now it's, it's serious. I distinctly remember asking uh, my flight engineer, Chase Osborne, I said, Chase, will you call our purser? His name was Jerry Maguire, by the way. Really? Oh, <laughs> what a wonderful man he was. And the flight attendant that was uh, in the first class, she said, well, Jerry's on break right now. And uh, I, I distinctly remember Chase saying, well, get him off break. We need him up here right now. <laughs> and uh, so Jerry came up and I, I said to Jerry, Jerry, we've got an anomaly in the cabin. We don't know what it is. We've had a fire warning. It could be a false warning. We're not sure. Could you please go back and put your crew on alert and uh, have them assess the cabin and come back to me as quickly as you can so we can get some information about what is happening back there. We're planning on diverting. We're going to divert to probably uh, either Bahrain, Oman, or maybe somewhere in Turkey. We don't know yet. We're working on that. We'll let you know. You're going to have about, from right now, probably neighborhood of an hour and an hour and a half to get everything set up. We had a thing in the airplane we called the brick. And the brick was a huge stack of uh, approach charts 
for all the airports that we would never use. But we had them there, and they were in cellophane, and I asked uh, Chase, my engineer, to break out the brick and see, get the charts for Bahrain. There was an airport across the Iranian border uh, in Turkey that we could use. Now, at this point, I, I should probably diverge a little bit and say that while we were in training um, for the DC-10, in the ground training, they really emphasize when you're flying over Iran, consider Iran an ocean. You are not going to land in Tehran. And they emphasize you will not land in Tehran. You will go somewhere else. That was in the back of my head. Our plan was not to land in Iran, anywhere but Iran. So as we're getting the charts out, it was looking like uh, the, the best bet was going to be, we had a choice, maybe Bahrain, or uh, there was a military base in Turkey, and we chose to go to a commercial, because we're at a military base, we have 241 people. What are you going to do with them all? It was hot in the summertime, you know, it, all kinds of problems. So we decided we're going to go to Bahrain. I was just ready to pick up the radio when the warning came off a third time. And now we have no bottles, but we got the fire warning going off. Now this time, when the fire warning activated, we were taught that you have a red light for cargo fire, and underneath that are a series of eight or nine little LED lights, and those are smoke lights. And there's an optical device in the cargo hold so that when um, smoke interferes between two light points that's supposed to light up the thing. They didn't light up. So we're thinking, probably a false warning. So you've got, you've got all three bottles are blown now? Uh, two bottles, two are, bottles blown. are blown. I got one more the bottle, but I can't, I can't do it. And that's on the timer? Yep. Okay. So that one is an hour and a half after the second one, yep. if things are still or happening. It. So you've blown the second bottle. You have no more control over that. Um, you certainly don't have all the information that you'd like. No. And you're getting some mixed messages here as well. But you know for sure you've had fire warnings, you blew the bottles. But now the smoke indication is not consistent with the fire warning. Correct. And the other thing that was kind of rolling around in the back of my mind was when we left Mumbai, um, we went through some really heavy weather out over the the Indian Ocean, and we had St. Elmo's fire all over the winter. It was a spectacular view, <laughs> but it was really bumpy. Another thought that went through my mind is maybe because of this turbulence, it might have jarred something loose that, you know, shorted out and made a contact to give us that warning. So then the uh, Jerry Maguire comes back up into the cockpit and says, uh, Bowie says, we took our shoes off, we walked the cabin, and uh, the floor on row 29 aft uh, is warmer than the rest of the airplane. And three of us, of the seven, feel as though we smell slight traces of smoke. There's ducting that comes from the third engine up under the floor, right, that goes to the air conditioning uh, packs or units. And I thought, I wonder if that's... What's it making is. the floor warm? Right. But when he said, we three of us think we smell smoke, I'll remember John Walkman, my, my co-pilot, I remember the look in his face. 
and uh, it, it was like a deer staring in the headlights. And I turned to Chase, and Chase says, uh, we're not going to try to go to Bahrain, are we? I said, guys, here's the deal. I said, Tehran is, we looked in our chart, 84 miles away versus an hour and probably at that point, probably an hour and five to an hour and 15 minutes to Bahrain. <clears throat> and we made a collective decision, and they told me, said, you know, you can decide what you want and we'll go with it, but we think Tehran is the best option. And I thought Tehran was the best option. And that's when the fun started. How was air traffic control? How was it working with them in getting the airplane um, on the ground? Was that a fairly fluid event? No. When you fly in that part of the world, the Iranian air traffic controllers are really the best. They speak clearly, distinctly. Um, and they're real good at Northwest 4-1, climb, maintain, 3-2-0. Perfect. But if you say something like, we have an emergency, uh, we have a May Day, and we need to land in Tehran, they don't necessarily understand everything you're saying. The non-standard stuff doesn't, uh, doesn't Yeah, the flows. everyday conversa conversa conversational mm -hmm. um, linguistics doesn't really register. They've been taught, you know, climb, descend, <laughs> turn, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they're real good at that. But if you try to have a conversation with them in English, um, not always that good. Yeah. And you're familiar with that from your previous experience. Right. There, right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it was very difficult getting across to them that we had an emergency. And um, they kept saying, stand by, stand by. And I, I think what they were doing is probably trying to find someone desperately that could come up and tell them what we were saying, what our problem was. At one point, they told us to go to Tabriz. They go, Tehran 4-1, you go Tabriz. I said, negative Tabriz. Now, I'd been to Tabriz, because at Iran Air, we served uh, Tabriz, and it's a joint commercial uh, and military airport, mostly military. But I didn't want to do that because the support structure that was in Tabriz probably would not be anywhere close to handling a foreign type U.S. airplane. Right. Maybe a Boeing, mm -hmm. but certainly not a Douglas. I mean, as you're thinking through the process, you have all this background, this foundation and everything, but you're, all, you're thinking not just about getting on the ground, what's going to happen after we get on the ground? Oh, what, what's going what to happen kind of after we got on the ground was a big deal because, number one, you're violating the first rule you were taught. Thou shalt not? Land in an ocean of Iran. Yeah. Right. You, you don't do that. So we were violating tenant number one. I wasn't really worried about what was going to happen on the ground in terms of equipment and support. I had no worry whatsoever. Iran Air is one of the best airlines in the Middle East. Still is today, honestly. That wasn't my issue. The, the problem was, how are we going to deal with this politically? Because we have I don't know, I can't remember how many people were hostage in Iran for 444 days, but we had 241 people. Mm -hmm. Of course, there were a lot of Indians, Dutch, French, uh, a few English, and some Americans. Um, and I wasn't sure how that was going to play out, but that was, that was more in the background. We had bigger problems, which were getting the thing on the ground. Because mm -hmm. 
again, we had so much fuel. Our problem was a decision point. We're overweight for Lynn by 74,000 pounds, I think it was, okay? If you do an overweight landing in an aircraft like that, then automatically before you leave again, you have to have an overweight inspection. Okay, who's gonna do that, right? How are you gonna get that signed up? Or do you just take off and ignore it? Hmm. Um, but if you dump the fuel, now you don't have enough fuel to get to Amsterdam. And how much fuel are you gonna have left? How far can you go on it? Mm -hmm. Uh, to get out of the country of Iran if, in fact, they let you go. So we talked about that and decided that probably best to dump the fuel because a maintenance issue, we thought, would be more of an issue than the fuel situation. Okay, we could beg for fuel, but you can't beg for maintenance. It's not going to happen. Of course, all this stuff is going through our mind, and they still haven't allowed us to go to Tehran yet. Finally, um, and this is probably a dangerous thing to do, I told the controller we were proceeding direct to Tehran. I got another standby, and I'm thinking, why, why are we getting standby? We've explained we're having an emergency. We declare mayday, mayday, mayday. What are they doing, right? So eventually, he comes back and says, uh, Northwest 4-1, you come to Tehran. Okay, we're going to Tehran. He said, uh, uh, you're cleared to the Victor Romeo Beacon to hold and uh, contact approach on so-and-so and so-and-so. Well, we didn't want to do a holding pattern because the whole objective was to get the thing on the ground. We got there now. Do we tell them we're dumping fuel? We're going to dump 74,000 pounds of fuel over your city mm -hmm. at low altitudes. So uh, we decided not to say anything and just dump the fuel. We didn't want to complicate the situation mm -hmm. anymore. It would have taken more time to get that to across to them. It would, uh, so we made one turn in the hole, and they gave us a vector for the ILS, and we uh, made the approach and landed in Tehran. It was, it was almost surreal, and I remember... I remember distinctly when we heard the 200-foot call on the, uh, the lady that tells us how low we are. It was 200 feet, and I remember thinking to myself, here goes my job. This is it. Just as we were touching down and the nose coming down, I'm thinking, wait a minute. I may not even get back to the U.S. Why am I worried about my job? <laughs> but it went through my Yeah, mind. yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Of course. So now, now you're on the ground. Now we're on the ground. And you're thinking now about, like what you said, like, holy smokes, well, now we're here. We're really here. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's a whole new set of problems. Yeah. So what, um, what now kind of thing are we going to do, right? The lawyers of Lane Powell serve as trusted counsel advocates and advisors to clients who rely on us to resolve complex business, litigation, and regulatory challenges. We invite you to subscribe to periodic legal updates relevant to your business, written and published by lawyers from Lane Powell. To sign up, visit lanepowell.com forward slash subscribe and choose any topics that are relevant to your industry or business. Thank you for joining our discussion today. 